0: Hi, I'm Coach Brian Singh, and after 11 years coaching competitive volleyball and as a head coach of a college team, I've become obsessed with helping athletes and coaches improve their knowledge and skills of the game by teaching them how to train efficiently and effectively to ultimately reach their volleyball goals. I've created the Volleyball by Design podcast to give you simple, actionable, step-by-step strategies so you can get clarity and apply what you learn right away. This is the volleyball by design podcast. What's up ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to episode 48 of the volleyball by design podcast. How are you guys doing today? Uh today we have a special special interview. Um but before we get started, just want to welcome everyone to the pod. Um if you're a new listener, uh, Thank you. Thank you so much for finding the pod. And and what took you so long? You have about 47 episodes to get caught up on. Um, A lot of episodes get caught up on, but there's a lot of value. So hopefully um, you guys find value there. And if you are a regular listener, thanks again for tuning in. We have a a special, special uh, show for you guys today. Um I do want to mention we get, we did get a new review on the pod so thank you and again for those of you listening if you have a chance to review the pod uh you know let me know what you think um I really appreciate the feedback and I take these reviews seriously because I want to make the show better you know as a coach my job is to grow the game as much as I can I want volleyball to be seen um a lot more than our regular westernized sports um so really really I appreciate the ratings I appreciate the reviews and the latest review I got was from Nathan Nathan in the United States um the, the, uh, he said the the podcast is fantastic quality information. Um, it has helped me level both my technique and game of understanding um, what it means to play at the high school level. Hopefully, playing college. Um, Coach B has been consistent and inspiring. I would love an episode dedicated to blocking. Well, no problem. We'll definitely put that um, on the list of upcoming episodes where we're going to talk about blocking, uh, position, timing, funneling defenders, reading. You know all that great stuff. So Nathan, thank you so much for the review. I really appreciate it. And let's uh, get into this episode now. So um, this is a bit surreal for me, listeners, because um, you guys all know I'm a college coach in Canada. And, you know, growing up as a college coach in Canada, we, we have our mentors. We have people we look up to. Um, and, it's not, and it's not very often that you're able to sit down with, um, with a legend. I would, I would call this man a legend. Um, he has taken volleyball in Canada to a level where we haven't seen before. Um, In 2016, uh, at the Rio Olympics, the Canadian national team placed the highest they've ever placed in fifth place. Um, This individual that I'm going to introduce took the team over, um, I want to say in 2006, and in the last, you know, over 10 year period, we've seen accomplishments we've never seen before. Our program has evolved to one of the most competitive programs in the world. Um, he's also a Hall of Famer. In 2017, he was inducted to the, our Canadian Volleyball Hall of Fame. Um, so he's not just a coach, he's a Hall of Fame coach. I'm extremely honoured to welcome our the head coach of the Canadian men's national team and also a professional coach in Turkey, uh, Coach Glenn Hogue. Thank you so much, Coach, for coming to the pod. Glenn, how are you today?
1: I'm pretty good. Thank you for
0: having me, Brian. No problem at all. This is uh, this is an honor for me. I, I was funny. I was talking to our assistant coaches, and I said, "Guess who I have coming on the pod to interview? and interviewing?" They like they listed everyone. They they couldn't believe it. Coach Glenn Hogue would be on the pod. And I said, "Yeah." And I'm like, "What questions do you want me to ask him?" This is an opportunity of a lifetime. So my assistant coaches are texting me all these questions and stuff like that. So I, I had to pick. I had to pick the ones that I, I, we have time for. But anyways, uh, it's an honor for me. Um, it's an honor for Canadian Volleyball, and I know coaches listening are excited for this episode, so thank you so much. What I'm first going to do is ask you uh, your story to becoming a professional head coach and the head coach of our national team. How did that happen? What what did that journey look like? Well, uh,
1: I probably started... Uh... From my First, with my love of sport, like from, from childhood, you know, I was born in northern Quebec uh, in a small, small town. Like like many young Canadians, they played hockey, or at least I had, uh, uh, I was exposed to hockey and, and to competitive and sport. And just 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 started loving it. And then from then, it just migrated as I moved uh, to the uh, Ottawa area, to Gatineau. Um, I was exposed to a little bit more organized sport and uh, did some basketball and stuff and volleyball. And... And I actually had so much passion for it that I went. I went to university for a phys Ed degree and a teaching degree. So, so that was probably the first part of, of maybe that taking that orientation towards coaching, which is very much teaching. Um, and so I took uh, uh, once I graduated there, I I, I joined the national team um, in '81, and uh, you know, uh, the that. That part of my career. So I spent three years basically training full time and competing with the national team until the, the 84 Olympics um, and then went to pro. And for those years as pro, um, I, was, I, I played pro till about 1993 it was my last season, I think. Um, so during that time, I, I had a lot of different coaches. You know might have being ken might have the national team coach was one so very much asian style very much uh, skill-based uh, uh, philosophy and a big fight you know um, learned a lot from him um and also through through my experience in, in italy and france and exposed to other coaches and i took notes all the time because you know i didn't know what i was going to become a coach but i was uh i i wanted to be a teacher so you know um I would talk, take notes on drills on how people would uh, kind of journaling a little bit about about my my experiences in the different championships there. Uh, in '93, I decided to retire. I Actually, I a, 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 got offered a job as a coach in uh, University of Sherbrooke in Quebec. Uh, it wasn't uh, I wasn't I wasn't close to being. Uh, a coach yet I I just uh, I retired from that because I had this opportunity and this is what really I wanted to do but I went through uh, this is when I really started getting um, going through all uh, the national certification process I had the luck of having a a mentorship by a a guy named Charles Cardinal who's who's a, a one of the best probably person to be mentored by i he's advancing in age now, but he really uh, showed me about, uh, talked to me about teaching, uh, mentored me for a long, long time, as that question. His specialty was planning, which, is, which made, it, made it really, it's a great start for coaching, is how, how do I plan my season? How do I plan the growth of an athlete and all that stuff? So, so from 93 on to about, I would say, 96, I did a lot, a lot, a lot of theoretical stuff. I learned a lot. Um, to this day, I still learn a lot. I still read about coaching and, and, and different things, but, uh, but that was kind of the start of my, my career as a, as a coach in 1993. Right. And did then you want from, me to go on to, to talk to Yeah, about? from yeah. the university of
0: Sherbrooke. How'd we progress there?
1: So, so I went from in Sherbrooke, I was there from 93 till about 99. So, and I really gained a lot of experience as a coach, uh, you know, made a lot of mistakes. uh, uh, Boy, did did I ever at the beginning. And I remember my, (laughs) because coming out as a player, you know, you expect your university coach, the players to, to just kind of being able to do, you know, the same that you're doing. So, hey, you know, it's easy, you know, but. Uh, you should be able to execute this easily, but in the end, that's um, a mistake that often that a lot of coaches that have been playing at a high level try to pass on, and and I've seen a lot of my friends that that graduated from pro and then came to be coaches did the same mistakes where you just kind of expect players to to uh, to be able to execute things. And in the end, my mentor just told me just remind yourself where you were 20 years ago. Uh, and then that's that's your starting point. So that kind of made me uh, reflect on it and starting to really explore the fact that you're gonna be a teacher and that that their point of departure is is way lower than what you ended what what your end point was as a player. And uh, so I evolved through those five years, I really evolved and got better and better and and really left the player and kinda of killed the player like like Julio Velasco, the great Argentinian coach, uh, says, you know, it says, "You yeah, have to become a good coach. You need to kill the player in you, and then really transfer to to becoming a coach." Um, so that was those those uh, those thoughts were really important to me, and I, I kind of shifted that. Um, so in '99, I I had a chance to. Uh, I was in Sherbrooke. I was pretty pretty busy with. With other tasks than just coaching, so I had to find and do a lot of financing. A lot of uh, I was it was during the, the 90s recession, and there was a lot of uh, restructuring. So I ended up running intramurals at university, plus coaching, plus you know financing. So it was I was overwhelmed. So you know the coaching kind of took you know I couldn't dedicate myself 100% to to coaching. In '99, I was asked to go to Paris uh, where I, I finished my career to help a coach at the end of the year in April uh, they were going to play out their struggle with they had a, a coach from China that struggled with communication and stuff so they wanted me to go as an assistant so the university let me go and I um, I spent six weeks with them and uh, went through the the process as an assistant coach process of, of basically helping them you know we reached the final we did we did okay we lost in the final but um, but it was a great experience and, and it was fun to be totally dedicated to, to the task of coaching. And so they, they made a proposition for two years for me to stay there in Paris. And this, and so the university accepted, I took a, a leave of absence, like a leave for two years, and, and I was able to dedicate 100% of my energy to coaching so that the growth there was was amazing. I ended up being very, very successful uh ended up uh, being able to to create so many so many things uh, you know like from from how do i how do i want to study a setter how do i want to study like what's important that's the side out phase of the opponent how do i study them you know I, I was pretty good at, at planning to, the growth of an athlete and kind of putting things in places, do movement analysis, do corrections, make them grow over time but you know now it, it was going to be into a professional kind of it, uh setting and would have to you know you're asked to to perform to win so so i uh, i was able to do that during um during that that period and i was really 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 successful so the learning process so you know, you, you try certain things and then they either work or not. And then you kind of question yourself, why don't they work? Or why do they work? How can I improve them? So I did that. And that kind of drew the base of my, of my coaching, uh, coaching philosophy and my coaching career. Um, so, uh, so during that time, I was able to work as an assistant coach for the French team uh from about 2001 to the Athens Olympic and it was a great experience we got bronze at world championship I was an assistant coach but you know again it was uh so again working with a different culture different really different uh working with different athletes some of them were my athletes in Paris but you know like working with that group and going on the international scene was great, and and we even played Canada during those times, and you know it kind of gave me a perspective on where the national team was, and that would affect later on how I approached uh, our national team program. So, um, so those four years were super formative, and uh, I left in two thousand and three to come back because my leave was finished, and I returned to the University of Sherbrooke. Uh, from then I you know i I spent three years there and and then decided to make this step because you know like it was difficult like young family you know had pretty good security you know with my employment at at the university and stuff I really enjoyed the area but and now there was a possibility to go to the national team, which was uh, a little bit less, you know, their contracts of like two to four years and stuff like that. So a little bit less job security. So it was it was kind of difficult to leave, but we took, we made this step, and uh, and then uh, so so the way I approached uh, Team Canada was, you know, at that point I knew we had played them with France twice in major competition. One at an um, the Olympic qualifier for Athens, and the other one was at the World Cup and so i scouted against canada so i knew exactly what their strength and weaknesses were and uh so that gave me the base of when i started 2006 here our weaknesses we're going to fix those you know we need to here's our we're going to establish systems it's going to be and you know like uh, from from passing to setting you know side out based systems versus what our systems uh, on the serve block defense um just to give basically boundaries like to, to have to orient players and in, into what we needed to do and then like for example if we have a block defense system that means we need to be better blockers, better defenders and here's how we're going to do it all individually you know here you need to improve this you need to improve this because that will fit in our system and that will make us better so uh so we started the uh, we started in 2006 it was uh was not easy it was a lot of uh, there was a mix we kept a couple gradually we uh, the players from that era started retiring and then we needed to bring new blood so that was uh, a very uh, a very uh, slow process we needed a lot of patience uh but you know we started right away with with what we had in mind and and it took took a long time to get there but i think once the basis were down and we started performing the guys started believing in in what we were doing then then after that it it started rolling
0: incredible um you know one one of my takeaways from your story was mentorship and it's funny because that changed my coaching significantly. When I finally found a mentor, I, I I tell my coaches, I learned more in three weeks than I did in the previous three years because I could lean on their experience. I could ask yeah. questions instead of YouTubing, Googling things and learning it on my own. So yeah, coaches listening, mentorship is significant. It's huge. Yeah, um, uh, If you
1: if can, can add something to this, sure. that I read a little book called Coaching and Mentoring from the uh, Harvard uh, Business uh, Review. And uh, it, it defines mentoring as tacit, passing tacit information. So as I share, we share experiences, you know, like you, you, you ask a question about an experience you had and I said, well, yeah, I had an experience like this one. This is how I managed it, you know? So I encourage coaches, if they could find some, some mentors, you know, and make it and, and share stuff with them and ask questions, maybe you'll find an answers.
0: Right. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think even for me, too, having a mentor was great. And then surrounding myself with volleyball coaches, like accountability. Not, uh, Yeah, I guess it's somewhat of an accountability group, but really just being in that volleyball conversation, having the group of coaches you can go to lean on, um, that helped me, too, because there was always an outlet that I had at my disposal. So, um, yeah, great. Okay, so here's what I want to do. Um, you uh, you talked about understanding how to look at a player and you know kind of go plan their path to progression and Mm -hmm. I know you were involved in creating the um the LTAD model right Yeah. Um, yeah so in terms of I'm gonna like you can spend as much time or as little time as you want in each position but just in terms of selecting the position what are you what do you look for and we'll start with the left side position what are your look for is when it comes to the left side position
1: Oh, well, you know, like for for any position, I would say athleticism is, you know, if you're looking at the high level, it's always important. You know, the ability, you know, like some players in Europe, I have some players that have like that are amazing athletes, physically amazing physical specimen, but lack what we call physical literacy. They're not very agile and stuff like that. So as you get those players much later, it's much harder to change. It's changeable, but you need some the capacity for the players to be totally motivated and totally focused on changing certain aspects, but it's more difficult. So, you know, when I talk about athleticism, you know, this capacity, you see how the, from a a motor point of view, that, that athlete is is very things come not easy, but fairly easy, you know? And uh, so for left side, you know, passing, passing becomes the important thing. And, and we know that maybe, uh, you know, I think now with the modern game, with the serving, is it's more serving is so hard that you do need passers to kind of reduce the capacity of the other team to hurt you. Uh, so it's still, for me, a, an important skill. Like some 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 countries don't really care about that skill too much. You know, they think, well, we need to force to go on to, to scoring points, like serving, attacking, blocking is more important. But in my philosophy, at least passing uh from an organization point of view and from an individual point of view becomes important to to reduce uh reduce the capacity of the opponent to hurt you or or to put you in bad situation which which is what they're trying to do basically so uh so that would be an important aspect um capacity to uh you know like for the rest you know pretty good Usually, all around. I like a mix. When I have a, when I build a team, you know, if I have a, you can have a player like you see that now often, where you have a player that's more passing oriented, good hitter, but pass pass oriented, with a, another guy that's more attack oriented, and then a libero that can pass, so that you offset uh, the weakness of the one, the more the attacker and in, in receive. Yeah. So these are the kind of things you know uh, that I look at for. Uh, uh, a receiver attacker. Now, there's a big, we're, I'm switching one of my talented athletes right now in Turkey next year. He's 19-year-old. He played opposite, very physical. Very, and he's a skilled player. But, And we had to put him as an opposite because because our, our opposite at the beginning of the season got injured. And we, uh, but he's a, he's a receiver attacker. And before I left Turkey, I just took him in the gym and said, listen, here are the, the different points that you need to focus on moving into from a receive point of view. And I said, just know that, you know, you, it's very much a stressful position because, you know, they'll come after you. Uh, you could be getting aced once, twice in a row, but you cannot quit. You cannot, you have to stay in the game. You have to, so those, those are traits, maybe like also traits of character that might, you might want to look at, um, but also there, there are traits that you can develop for the player. Like uh, when I, I work with my left side, you know, I'll t- I tell them to compete against the server, you know, like, come on, serve me, you know, like, even if you're not, you know, just to be more, more combative against the server than, than feeling like a victim always coming after me, you know. So there's things that you can do to help your, your athletes uh, grow to be a little bit stronger mentally for left side.
0: Right. In terms of um, the technical of uh, re- of serve reception, um, mm-hmm. are there any cues that you specifically look for when it comes to determining um, a great uh, passer, or a great res- uh, player t- uh, for reception?
1: You said you can see some people have, have more of a feeling for it, or or more. Uh, I've had both. Like I've had uh, had some guy that have just amazing passing platform, and I have a great feel for passing. Uh, okay, it could probably come from the past. I have a Brazilian player that's 40 years old. He's now a, a libero on my team. And he's like textbook passer. One of the best I've ever seen ever. And he's still good, you know, on hard serve and stuff. Um, but uh, but then I've seen the other types where, you know, uh, I've seen the one that, you know, they're more attackers and stuff. And, and all of a sudden, you know, they're starting to, with with time over the years, starting to become really steady passer without being, you know, these really kind of perfect platform guys. You can see the increase in in efficiency, and then there's the one that that really will struggle all through. I, I, uh, so you kind of see all of all of those. So when you observe a, a passer, you know, it's really important to to look like if you have a natural passer, like, and it's it's. Uh, it's really a bonus on your group, you know, depending on how you want to
0: compose your team for sure. Right. So for for your opposite you mentioned earlier, now that you're transitioning to the left side position, mm-hmm. what are what are some of the um the things that you're gonna tell this athlete to go from opposite to left side? Like that's a significant transition. So what are some things he's gonna have to really work on? Well, about?
1: he's a great attacker, like an amazing attacker, blocker, server. So, you know, now like it's more like we're changing him in position on defense and then right. we're changing him then he's, he's going to be passing was the one thing I told him because that's the switch he was going to make. Like, he's going to the Turkish national team now. They're going to go to Euroleague. So I spent time talking mostly about the passing. Uh, I didn't have time to talk because, you know, like, he, we just finished the season and in, in, it was a heavy season this year. So he uh, he had to go home to rest before he would go to the national So I took him in the gym for about an hour and explained certain principles, but mostly passing principles uh, about angle, you know, um, you know, get footwork, reading the server, reading the server is big important and knowing what the server is going to do. So, what's what is the server's tendencies? Uh, what kind of serve, what type of serve? Does he have a, a direction that he likes to serve to? Does he like to serve to one? Is that his best serve the one? Then, but that's not only for perspective of the left side, it's also the perspective of organizing your reception, you know. Right. And so so uh and then competing against the server. I said, never, never stop competing. Don't put yourself, don't make yourself a victim at any time. Even if you get if you get Ace twice, you know, just at any time, get back up. You know, invite him to serve you. You're gonna pass his serve, like because that that puts you. You're more agonistic. You're more, more on to him than than going. Oh no, like don't serve me. Oh, I hope I'm gonna pass this one. Okay, you know, kind of thing. So. So that mindset is pretty important for a pastor. But as soon as you see your athlete kind of going that way, like make sure that it's a simple, just a key word, you know, like compete. You know, I'm going to compete against him or invite him, you know, serve me, serve me kind of thing mentally. And then being, you know, to, to knowing that. And, and then I always tell them that, you know, you're going to make mistakes. That's the one by one thing that I tell them is that, you know, F.A. is his name, which I said, you know, it's going to take a while to make that switch. And uh, although he was last season, he was a receiver attacker. So just this all season, he played opposite. Got it. You know, uh, he's he's a good skilled guy. So, but it'll be it'll be a little bit of chaos at the beginning, I think, once he, he moves into that position.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah. No. Fantastic. Um, let's transition to the middle position. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some things for the middle position you look for?
1: Well, you know, uh, size is important, obviously. Um, a middle is really will never be kind of the star of the team. Will never be the biggest point scorer. You as a coach evaluate like when you look at middles, you you look at, at guys that you know cover the net well, can hit, okay, can attack like quick different quick sets. You know now now you know if I look at a guy like Graham Vikas, who's becoming one of the best, you know, like Graham can can hit a. a a back a back quick a front quick a push a double push uh, and, and 31 you know and and so you know he's able to do that you got to find a setter obviously that can can run that kind of offense but he's able to do that um and graham's at that point in his career where he can you know uh, he'll make read he'll, he'll he'll play smart he'll make reads you know he'll make he'll make some commits or or he'll release early even though he, can, he might get beat on that so so middle position is a very, a very difficult position. It's a uh, the great Alexander Savin, one Russian guy that I remember when I was young. Uh, I was reading what it was not a lot of information, but it was a, thing, uh, a magazine called the American Volleyball Magazine. In the old days, like we were talking in the seventies. And I remember Savin saying, you know, I think like a setter. So you know, like like as a middle you're almost in that position where you need to figure out what the setter is going to do. Uh, you need to integrate his mind, you know, uh, you need to have capacity to memorize. Where did the ball go the last time? Why is he doing this? Is he trying to run me into this? Um, you know, uh, so there's, there's a bit of a cognitive aspect to, to the game of middle. And, uh, and then there's again, the psychological, uh, Portion of the position which becomes important. To, you're gonna, you might, you might get beat ten times for for one slowdown, for one positive slowdown, you know, like or you know, or for one block. Like that's that the nature of the game, you know. If you get eight, ten blocks, then fine. But you know, hmm, nowadays with the speed of the game, you know, it's it's not the case. So um, I also like to give a lot of responsibility to my middles. Um, as far as leadership of the blocking lineup, you know, and how, and communicating with with not only the two players but also the, you know, we're gonna do be, we're gonna be doing this, you know, you guys could set up position. If I'm gonna be committing, then you don't need to, you need to maybe be on the outside of me if I'm pits on, I'm jump jump full of my on the quick set, so, you know that kind of stuff and that that means that you know under stressful because i've had young middles where that focus is so hard already for the position that trying to communicate with the rest of the group is just too much so that's kind of where you want to go um you know good good startup speed you know pushing off both sides a lot of it is a lot of it is developing the athlete to, to, to do that like it's it won't be born when they come to you they're not born middle blockers you're going to make them middle blockers so so you know uh working with them on that and uh, making sure that you you work a lot uh on movement both going both ways to the left to the right um uh, gustavo i was i was talking to an italian coach and gustavo the great the great middle brazilian middle blocker um and the Italian coach was saying that at every training he would just work on his movement at the net at least ten minutes per training, either at the beginning, or at the end. But he would just go. He wouldn't even ask the coach. He just he's just just saw doing it every time he would do it. Then he became really
0: good at moving. So right, that's interesting actually um, to think like a setter. I've never I've never thought of it that way, but that's that's a great point because that's essentially who you're trying to beat and. Uh, engage what they're going to do so yeah yes. that's that's fantastic yeah, it's, it's a lot of in
1: a lot of informa- information gathering information and decision making for the middle although now with players helping out like outside haters helping out they have to almost do the same it has to be a collective thing. but uh but yeah the middle is still a person that that has to uh to do that and uh, you know like Big hitter here. Percentages here. Okay, I think he's going to go here. Where are we? Are we at the end of the set? Crucial point. What does he do? And that can be prepared before with the game plan. You know, what does he do at crucial moment? You know, this setter. Right. He likes right. to set his opposite. You know, or he doesn't set his opposite if his opposite's back row. So there's a lot of things that you have that can help you make decisions.
0: Right. No, that's that's fantastic. Okay, so let's transition to the setter position. Difficult mm-hmm. position here as well.
1: Yeah. So uh, for me, setter must. Must be, it's usually a profile. Okay, athletically, probably your best athlete, in my opinion. Like, it's really important that, that you know, he moves well, uh, you know, has a, a good uh, good spatial orientation. Um, and, uh, you know, okay, if we can get a tall one, that's fine. But it has to be t- tactically strong and locate well. Like, for me, location is everything. Like it, you can have a, a setter that might not be a genius you know and have the the, the very uh, <clears throat> very good combinations all the time very crafty, but somebody that has if you have a good hitting team and a setter can locate man that's that's you know ninety percent of the game right there like it's just right. hitters are not at they're just coming and then taking big swings so you know you' you're you're already ahead of the head of the game um uh character is important you know in a way etc has to be giving he has to be able to be patient cannot be you know emotionally get too involved in the game like and frustrated and stuff like that because every ball funnels through him or her you know so it's it's super important that 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 they keep their focus that they get back into into what's important kind of stay in the now type of thing uh and, and they can project themselves in the future at, at when they're preparing their strategy, but that's, that's the only way that, that the only part of the, I would say, of the, of the game where they can project themselves in the future is preparing tactically for something that's coming or memorizing something that happened. But otherwise, kind of staying the now. Something gets you frustrated, snap out of it, get back. Something else is, is going to happen. you got to prepare your group to attack in the next one. So that's right. super important for that for uh, a setter. Um, yeah, like and then the other skills. Well, you know, depends. Like for me, for example, if you take a guy like Dustin Schneider uh, at a certain period of our of the history of our group with the national team, uh, he was the setter. He was the guy. You know, I, I did not I had taller setters, but not as good as him. So you know, he was the man. The whole. Um, in the, eventually, he mentored TJ, and uh, because Dustin unfortunately started having physical problems, that kind of and it had to stop. But but uh, he took on to me. Took on the, the task of helping TJ grow and stuff, and, and made him a good setter. We have other good setters like Jay Blanknow Brett Walsh, and stuff. Now that I came up. With. Right. So uh, yeah. So. It's, um, so the, you know, size is important that in an international game, we all wish we'd have a 6-6 six, six setter and stuff like that. But, you know, in Canada, we have a, we have the players we have. And, you know, uh, what you do, though, is to adjust, to adjust your strategies to, you know.
0: Yeah, I like your point on location, location, location. I, yeah, I think that, that every coach can agree that that's, that trumps all. Would you agree with that that location yeah location? yeah yeah if you
1: if, you, if you, that's probably the the primary thing i would i would work on like uh especially it seems like position four location to position four seems to be what my experience worldwide is that seemed to be the most difficult set to do it's probably because it's so far the ball has to carry a longer distance right. so you know a little bit of a little bit of difference at the, at the initial point makes a big difference at the end so that set is, uh, and for example, one
0: of Dustin's strength was his position four
1: set, you know? Right. As
0: if, you know, like, but. Yeah, no, fantastic. Uh, Okay, two more. Uh, Opposite, right side. What are we looking for there? Opposites,
1: Opposite. you know, great attacker, uh, great server, uh, good blocker as well. Like those, those, you know, you want somebody, like there's all kinds of them. Like, you know, there's, there's some big ones that are very powerful. There's some, smaller ones that are really crafty. Uh, I would say that, you know, now in the modern game, like, good serving would be important from them. Um, yeah, like, uh, you know, we we had the chance to have guys like Gavin, and uh, now we have, uh, you know, Gavin, Gavin was in fourth class opposite. Uh, also, Gavin, Gavin would get involved in digging, you know, would pick up balls for us and stuff. Like, he wasn't was in this a, a real gap in position one you know whenever he did so right um, great leadership so you know like that's pretty important uh, for an opposite um, but you know you look at the I don't know the name of the the, the, the small Japanese opposite they have now he's super small but mm-hmm. really good player like you know great serve one of the best if not the best in the world right now and and you know great attacker left-handed. But so, you know, like this guy's an international attacker, like opposite, but, you know, small. So depending on what you have with, you know, what, what you have on your team, what you have to work with is, is make sure that you orient your work towards towards those qualities, like serving, attacking, uh, right. blocking if they're bigger. But, you know, those two aspects, serving, attacking, are pretty important, I think,
0: right. for the opposite position. Right. No, absolutely. Uh, okay, last one libero or libero what are we doing there
1: libero again it would be similar to to the to the middle in the sense that he would be kind of taking leadership in some phases of the game such as receive uh you know if if he's both good at receiving and digging then you know also you can give him more uh more responsibility uh with the digging part now we see a lot of the two two libero games you know with with Mm. passing libero and the Defending libero, so uh, France has one great one, uh, you know, Kepelnikov, who's who can do both. Uh, he's he's amazing. He sweeps the floor like he. What I like, like I was, I'm training a young libero in Turkey right now, and I'm just telling him, like you know, the floor is yours. Like, You know, like like for example, if you see Kepelnikov, he has the capacity to. go cover you know if the ball's blocked deep he will run back and get it like it's it's my court you know instead of just kind of relying on others to okay your position is this you should be covering here he just takes everything so i kind of like that attitude you know like you know you should you should cover as much court as you can take risk on reception you know if we have a weak passer and you know we You might want, I I always told, uh, I think I was telling Dan Lewis uh, when he was liberal with it, you know, I don't care. I don't mind if you take risks, Dan. If you may take, you know, it's okay. You're going to have some failures, but I will accept those. Because I think if you take risks, you're going to create more good things. You're going to be more able to help us, you know. So so that's... uh, Size doesn't really matter. It's just, for me, it, it's all basically efficiency. If you have a little bit b- bigger passer that may be longer on, you might be able to cover more court, but right, uh, but it's not necessarily uh, uh, a quality that I look at.
0: Right. Well, fantastic. Thanks for going through uh, those five positions. That was great information. Um, so I want to pick your brain out on some of your strengths you mentioned earlier about uh, planning and uh, seasonal planning and things like that. So when you sit down before the start of your season, you know, what factors go, go into your seasonal planning? Um, yeah, so there's many, many factors. So it depends on where, so you you never have, like,
1: especially in pro, like I have guys that are 19 years old and I got guys that are 40 years old. So once you've profiled what you have uh, and then you set the objectives for your team, uh, you know, it, it, it's, so you, you plan the season, but I always still plan, uh, for the growth of the athletes. So I have young athletes that I want to see perform maybe in a year or two years. So that's part of my plan. So yeah, I will grow the team, put my matches down on my calendar, uh, you know, uh, and then and then organize training so that, that the, the, the growth aspect is, is uh, if it's needed for certain athletes, then that's what I'll put my emphasis in with this athlete. But when, you know, at the same time, parallel to that, Getting the team to perform. So I always look at each position as a plus minus kind of things. So that cost the benefit. So you know, like so if he costs me too much in this position, I cannot play him. So I need to fix this. I need to be him to be a better passer or a better blocker or something like that. If we increase this 20% to 30% through the season or or for the next season, then we're just gonna be better for it. So so I set goals for each athlete. And that that what's once you've profiled the athlete, uh, you set goals, you know, in certain aspects, could be skills, could be, could be uh, psycho-emotional development, or could be cognitive development, more from a tactical point of view, depending on the weakness that you detect or the strength. And, uh, and then I set up planning uh, my season. Uh, But some of those plans are for two, three years. Some of these athletes are future athletes that I want to see perform. So, because, if I just throw him on the bench and say, "Okay, well, not gonna, I'm gonna take care only about the starting six, then you know, he's never gonna be ready. Never gonna be learning the years right. to come. So it's pretty something that Charles, my mentor, has taught me very, very carefully, and I'm pretty careful what I do. So I set up, I set up these objectives based also on the time that I have and the number. Like, if for for coaches to set objectives, you got to make sure that you understand. Okay, you can profile your athlete, but, you know, if you have, you know, the objectives you're going to set will, they will progress towards their fruition and their best, depending on the time that you have in the gym, the number of, you know, like if you only have two trainings a week versus five or like with, with with the pros, I have kids that are 18, 19 and I have five trainings plus three lifts a week, you know, so the growth is much faster or at least, you know, setting the objective is easier. Um, so this is the way I, I go about it. So profile, set up the goals, set the loads, the exercises that I'm going to do, implement implement them in training and make sure that I always evaluate. So assess, assess. Am I, you know, is what I'm doing working or not? And why is it not working if it is? And why is it working? And what sh- what is the next step? So it's kind of coaches that always do you always have to be in critical mode, critical, uh, critical reflection mode. So, you know, you, 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 decide, you think about what you've been doing and then, okay, is it working? And now, if it's not working, why is it not working? So, is the reason the athlete doesn't understand what I'm doing, you know? Or am I choosing the wrong exercises to kind of make him catch on to, uh, to what I... So, Daniel Castellani, the Argentinian coach, told me once, you know, the important thing is to find the key the key to that specific athlete, so that he can understand, he can run the proper uh, proper drills, uh, and then put him in a in game setting and, and see how he reacts and see if, but that communication you know, may, needs to be very, very clear. So you need, if it's not clear, then maybe I use the wrong key with this, with this, uh, with this athlete and I need to change that key. And that's why assessing becomes so important. Right. Once you've assessed, then you go back to the process. You adjust your goals. You start, you adjust your, your loads and your, your drills, and then you, you implement again, and then you, you, um, you assess. So this is, is a, a typical kind of, it's a, a rotating, uh, this, I got this from a slide that my mentor gave me, and it, this slide is in my head all the time. So I'm always kind of doing this to try to see. Uh, to try to make quick adjustments, you know, to my plan if things are not working.
0: Right. So um, so I, I like that. Profile, goals. What does a, um, a preseason look like? So prior to the actual official first match, what does a preseason look like for your team?
1: So uh, for a professional team, it's a little bit different than with the national team because national team, we don't have preseason. We have a period where the players come back from playoffs. Uh, usually we will, if we can, give them some rest. We don't have a huge, huge roster in Canada. So, you know, we can't have to use. So give them some rest, uh, get them evaluated like from medical point of view and stuff like that. See where they're at also mentally and stuff and then start international season. So that's very different. In some season, uh, you know, we have a little bit more time. So depending if players are involved in international season or European leagues during the summer or championship, then these players, you know, will be active all summer. So the way when they come back in September, August, then you need to probably give them rest and then start implementing your plan. But for the others, uh, usually we go, I calculate a minimum of nine weeks prior to the first match for and for training. You know, it's pretty well the same, like three, three, three weeks mesocycles. One of... And before that, this kind of they will do some physical work, uh, you know, a couple of weeks of preparation, physical work, and then at at the beginning of that nine weeks nine week period, uh, we'll have a three week cycles of conditioning where we start with balls and stuff, more specific, and then gradually increase uh, increase with uh, more specific stuff and and build towards the beginning of the season with the third so. F- uh, the third cycle of three weeks would be with more friendly games and stuff. We're starting to approach, you know, so it's a a very gradual, uh, gradual process, but typically minimum nine weeks. It can be a little bit more, uh, obviously with the guys that are involved in in international seasons in the summer, it's less, but you get, but they are training in the summer. So it's not like they come with nothing. You've got, Uh, It's just how you evaluate where they're at from a mental perspective. They're really tired coming out of the season and stuff, and you want to give them a little break. uh, Maybe get them to recondition their bodies a little bit. Make sure that medically, you know, they had some injuries during the summer that these things are taken care of. Right. And are you? Sorry. Go Go ahead.
0: No, sorry. Are are you planning um, any exhibition games in this nine-week cycle, or is it just training? Uh,
1: Yeah. Yeah. So so you go three weeks. Just I can I can't describe. So it's basically it's about three weeks of uh, of conditioning. When I say conditioning, it's it's kind of the first. Uh, we'll do a lot of ball handling stuff with some conditioning to really give a good base. The second group, second cycle of three weeks. Then we're starting with more complex uh, skill sequences. You know, uh, hitter setter hitter relation. Uh, you know, getting increasing the volume of jumps and stuff like that. So, right. and then the third cycle, we're starting to to be more, very much more specific, it's gradual. Even in the second cycle, we're getting with more, more complex sequences. The third cycle, the three weeks prior to the beginning of the season, then probably every one of these weeks will have friendly games to get get the guys to uh, start feeling each other on the court in a real game situation.
0: Got it. And then, in terms of uh, during the season, um, how how does it look in terms of practice, film sessions, strength training, matches? Um, how do you manage all that?
1: Yeah, so in the in our uh, in the in the in the professional club environment, you know, we go normally. Uh, so there's two things. If you're involved in the European Cup, then you have two matches a week with travel. Uh, but a normal one-week cycle would be would be a fairly you'd be about five trainings a week plus at least two or three lifts. Usually three lifts early in the season to keep just for the growth of the athletes you know i find that the athletes let's say we'll start beginning of august with a season starting around the end of september the guys don't get the team doesn't get to to its optimal level until probably november so we, we keep though. so we tweak our our planning to make sure that the guys keep growing although the season has started so your typical typical week would be like usually i'll have monday and tuesday being fairly heavy weeks uh Every day, sorry, with two or two a day. Usually a lift on the on the Monday and a heavy practice the Monday night. The Tuesday will be a lighter lift, but it's a mostly preventive lift, you know, for shoulder prevention, back and stuff like we. Uh, and then, uh and then we'll uh, the Tuesday we'll have a, another dynamic practice, and then usually I drop quite a bit on the Wednesday. We'll have a training, maybe a low impact training, just to just to rest the nervous system, just to rest the joint a little bit, Thursday, let's say we play Saturday, the Thursday will be, will be more of an intensity peak where, you know, we'll work on strength, speed and and weights. And uh, then we start, we've already, we start game planning, uh, maybe a repetition of things that we're going to do against our opponent. Um, or, Or, you know, let's say, let's say the opponent runs a 31 base offense, then we'll, train against a 31-base offense. If we want to run certain things against them, then maybe we'll also work uh, work a little bit on, on our offense specifically for this, uh, to playing that team. Uh, so that that's what we do on Thursday evening. And then the Friday usually is, is a light practice. Uh, we could do a little bit of six-on-six, six, but not too long. And then Saturday we play wow uh, right sunday being off that's that's kind of typical of a one match a week cycle the mm-hmm. two match a week cycle is much harder because depending so usually they place the uh, european league matches either tuesday wednesday or thursday so you might be traveling out of the country uh, so depending on when we play uh we tweak our schedule what we want to try is to maintain our strength our strength base just because it it maintains what we call structural tolerance, the capacity of the athlete to train and compete without getting injury. That's the definition of structural right. tolerance. So we need to uh, be able to uh, uh, maintain that. So sometimes we play a Saturday. Let's say we have to go on a, on a match on a, on a Tuesday for in some country and we'll be traveling the Monday Then we'll lift on a Sunday. We won't give a total day off just to maintain some strength pace and stuff. To right. Prevent injuries. So, and then travel the Monday, uh, you know, have a light practice that night, play the Thursday, the Tuesday, come back to Wednesday. And we usually, depending on the length of the travel, we usually give them the day off. And then the Thursday, we get back into training and the lift. And then, you know, training and a lift like like before. So, th- okay. Thursday back for a match to Saturday, Friday, a little bit lighter practice, and Saturday. It just weighs on you. So during during the the season, we uh, if we have windows where we can uh, maybe we'll do what we call a strength recall, or you know, um, then I'll I'll you know we do a little bit more strength that week because we can. Um, also, in the big picture, so when. The young athletes in there might although we might have it two matches a week, but if they're not playing so much then they'll be lifting all week because again for them we're thinking about future we're trying to build them build their structural tolerance and their capacity to train more right. and compete
0: more. right no thank you for that insight that's that's fantastic I know our coaches will appreciate that because that's uh, that that's that's a great great insight to what it looks like on a pro level and I'm just reflecting on our our college. Scheduling and how it works, and it's interesting. I may have to change a couple of things, but I, I like I like some of the stuff that you guys did with the the, the two days and how you manage the load and yeah. really heavy in the beginning. That's that's really you always have
1: to think about players having. Like a, I think Dean Kreelar's uh, in when we were in Winnipeg. Told talk to us as a uh, physiologist in, in Winnipeg. He told us about having pancakes in their legs. The number of pancakes that they have in their legs, you know, so. Mm-hmm. You have to have enough pancakes you know to tolerate the load and without getting injured once you're starting emptying the the pancakes you're getting into into maybe some zones that could be dangerous so that that kind of image was always in my head so i always tried to think about the pancakes you know and and build build the base at the beginning of the season so that they have enough pancakes to tolerate the load during right. the season and then maintain the load meaning Try to build up the pancakes. You know, after you know, after maybe a tough week, like how do we rest them, recondition to bring more pancakes that they can
0: uh... right, right, great. Okay, I got a couple more for you. I don't want to keep you too much longer. This has been fantastic so far. Um, so for you as a coach, uh, what have been your aha moments where? Either it shifted your perspective as a coach or you elevated your coaching. You know, what are some of the important lessons along the way? It's kind of a loaded question there, but any kind of big moments, any kind of big lessons that really shifted your perspective as a coach and took you to that next level?
1: Uh, well, I would say not not nothing really specific because it was ongoing toward my career, like many moments. But I remember a moment when we were in 2010 and – uh at world championship in italy and we had what they call the pool at that. like we had we were at poland germany and serbia in our pool and that was a uh, and i remember telling the guys like part of the philosophy at the beginning is to try to have confidence in our system like like and we're we're in the building phase of the program and, and at that time the team is quite young and told the guys you know so we we do a really good match against poland we lose 3-1 we, you could see our youth was was affecting us. We were playing pretty good, um, and then lose to Germany, and and then we beat no, we lose. We uh, so so the next day I told we had made a substantial amount of errors, you know, especially from our serving perspective. And I told the guys I said let's let's take the match against Serbia as a, you know, let let us try to keep things under control and and really be patient and test ourselves, you know, as far as uh, you know, and play each point at you know very carefully you know and, and challenge them this way and we beat them through. and that was a real relief revealing moment for me and for the team um and the interesting thing that we had put you know we had a, a block defense system and stuff and, and statistically we were doing so well like from a block defense perspective but we couldn't transition kill that's what came out of that of that um of that tournament is is we struggled we dug ball set but we couldn't kill him so
0: out of system hitting like out of system yeah
1: out, okay. exactly out of system hitting so so what we did it, 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 well that was like and and that's where that's what planning and establishing system does is that at one point we had planned you know we had a, a blog defense system we had and but it just revealed that oh you know we've got all that it's going really well but there's there's an aspect that we need to work on. So we came out of that, and that's the important thing. That's why when you're structured and have a fairly good plan and have a little bit of a vision of where you want to go, then you'll see the gaps in, in inside your, your your what you're trying to do. You know, if you go randomly, then it's difficult. Right. You know, you can't you can't pinpoint what's what. But there, statistically, we had it. We had the measurements, and we're going okay. This is what we need to work on now. So that was kind of—I don't know if it's a moment, but it was one of those moments where it was really revealing that that was one of our weaknesses, and we needed to work on it. So coming out of the worlds, we started working on on this as well. So this, there are moments uh, when I was in Paris as a young coach, you know, and and developing all these these things, like all my scouting system and stuff. Uh, you know, and, it, and ending up winning winning uh, the Champions League against the great Treviso, you know. And it just kind of, oh, what I put in place is working, you know, like, you know, over time, it wasn't done just, you know, a match before we played the, the final, but like over the season, tweaking things and stuff, and then, okay, it's working. That doesn't mean it's going to work five years down the road, but it just meant that, Okay, this is pretty good. I can rely on this, and then probably try to improve it and adapt it as the game
0: is changing. Right, right. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's uh, that's great. And I like the, the structure because if you have structure, if you have a plan, you can assess and then make changes. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's fantastic. Yeah. Okay, a couple more. Um, this is a this is a really big one that coaches always uh, are talking about, myself including ingredients to a championship program what are the must-haves of building a championship program okay
1: well i think you need talent for one thing like you know it's, it's difficult without talent like if you have very talented athletes and and you have a, a proper plan and and you, know, you can lead them to, to to play at their best potential then then you have a good chance of winning but you know winning is not easy like uh you know, there's, there'll be only one champion. So, you know, like, it doesn't mean that the finalist is bad or that the semi was bad. It just happened that the score was in favor of that team at that point. Um, mindset, I think, becomes super important. How, how you can get your group to really focus on the target, you know, and not deviate from, from the target. So basically... And and you as a coach need to create that um, that atmosphere, you know, that will lead you, that will, uh, that will where the group will feel very good in knowing that okay, there's the road we're taking, here are the things that we're we're gonna do like system wise and stuff like that. There's the growth I'm gonna have, and I I'm I'm willing to follow this. Um, so also you know that that will mean to be able to check the ego of your players like you, you could have like your best player being you know a really big ego and kind of being a one you know like one-dimensional player basically thinking about his thing really it's difficult unless unless you know the other team they're really weak and then one guy can overpower the whole league but which is not the case you know at the high level right and uh Basically, you need everybody to try to follow and 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 have these these kind of natural athletes, uh, so that they can develop leadership, and that the team can benefit from that leadership. Right. For me, the rest is just is just about you. The uh, rest is mechanics, kind of you know, like drills and 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 teaching skills, and so it all fits in in the system. But the mindset of your group, the mindset of your athletes. Uh, will make a big difference you know right. uh, achieving in each practice, going into every practice uh, with the focus of and it 's going to be a long season, but with the focus that I want to be I want to come out of this practice and i 've done well and and i 've improved one of my skill or or all of my skill or 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 my team you know um, how do we create that you know I think an important thing is to define define your season ahead of time define what you want to accomplish uh, and establish establish the rules with the group let the group establish the rules that are going to guide you what kind of attitude do we want in training and stuff like that so that they can manage it you know right that's pretty important usually uh, I remember seeing that in one I think it was one video on the rugby they had United uh, England England Scottish, I think Irish rugby men, you know, together. Like, you know, they don't like that each other that much uh yep. culturally. And uh made them work together. And the guys took, you know, they were in a classroom and just wrote down what the rules were going to be, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, as we're gonna be going. I think they were gonna go place South Africa or something like this. Anyways, they they had this group, and it was an experiment for them because they have all the national team but they took these best players and then but the one thing that struck me was that they went into a classroom and they decided what's acceptable, what's not acceptable as we want to reach victory, you know? Yeah. And they decided uh, on it. A really good book, I might add, like uh, is the book Legacy, uh, uh, about the All Blacks is an excellent, for all coaches, an excellent book. so I can, I would recommend it Legacy. strongly.
0: Great. Oh, fantastic. Okay, two more quick ones for you and then uh, we're gonna wrap this up. Um, so one, one question actually that a bunch of coaches have, have asked me is, do you see volleyball ever shifting to, um, unlimited substitutions like other sports like basketball and hockey and so I've, forth?
1: I've heard, I've heard, uh, I think it will evolve to, to this. I'm not sure. Like, uh, but I've heard people talking about it. Yeah. Uh, could be good. You know, uh, it would be, it would be interesting to test actually, Yeah. uh, or you know maybe instead of six maybe twelve I don't know, but uh, yeah it would be it would be interesting to see.
0: Okay, yeah, yeah. interesting. Yeah. Last one for you, coach. Um, I know you're a stats guy, you're a numbers guy. Uh, sure. What are the stats you pay attention to?
1: Oh, I do my own. Um, I have I have a data volley scout and stuff. I have my own performance indicators and stuff. But I for my matches especially in league. Uh, I don't do it so much with a national team because like, uh, everything's so condensed during the international game. But in my league, I do my own statting after just to observe. I like to watch the whole match. I like to see why things went well, why things didn't go well, because that will guide me into tweaking my plan for the next week, whether we need to to put the end, or, or next few weeks, let's say something went went bad. And it's especially important at the beginning of the season when you go from from friendly games to real games and then see the reaction of the guys and then say, okay, well, you know, this, 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 I need to tweak. So, um, I look at all, I've got, I've got, a, have got a sheet with pretty well.
0: I've seen it you showed us at the, at the coaching symposium, the okay. in depth, in depth breakdown, it was incredible. Yeah. But yeah sorry. Continue.
1: I, I do it by hand too. Like I do play yeah. by play, slow-mo. I like, I go back because I, I do like to analyze and, uh, what's happening so that I, I can say, okay, well, this guy. Because if you look at statistics directly, it's you know, and you say, okay, well, this guy had a bad hitting game. Then the, re- the the question is not the number and the stats. It's just why did he have a you know did the setter set him only in bad situations you know, and he didn't have a chance to to get anything in system where he could you know, score more points, or is it really him that's not hitting well, and what's the re- why is he not hitting well? You know, so that. That's what it it helps me comprehend you know just the, the history of the game and then it transfers to the stats and then from there uh from there i evaluate like i said pretty well everything um
0: there's no I specific pro- one you look for or like a but like for, for me now this this is me personally i always like to look at side out percentage based on rotation so we figure out yeah. what our weakest rotation is and and really plan the next practice to dissect why that happened. That, that's yeah. one of the stats that I look for. Are there any specific ones? Yeah, used? that's a good
1: metric. Uh, I'll look at I'll look at the, what they call the complex side out. So for exactly not, I'll look at the first ball side out, the very first ball to touch, and then the, and then if there's a transition in that, in that phase, it's still side out to me. Uh, okay. And then the uh, service block defense. Like, for example, that's how we found out that with the National League 2010 that we can hit eyeballs, like out of system balls, off the defense, off the block defense uh, right. sequence. So, you know, so that that kind of, th- we had to work on it for years after. Like, it wasn't just <laughs> the next week, but, you know. Right. Um, but yeah, it's exactly some of all those metrics we look at, you know. We'll uh, study our setter. Like, did our setter have a good game? Did he, you know, uh, implement the game plan and stuff like that often those metrics are a little bit harder they're not directly on the on the stats but uh, they give you a sense of his distribution you know was he uh, did he made the right thing at the right moment did he choose the right hitter like you know and so on um and I, I like i really like the plus minus that came to me from larry mckay from university of Winnipeg. i have been using it since then it's a kind of a cost to benefit really pure cost to yeah. benefit number of points you score number of points you, sco- you cost right and uh and that's a metric then i'll go look okay well recently i looked at the my son's next team Fenerbahce, they lost in the fourth match uh, of the, the final in turkey and uh one of their main player, Hidalgo, had 20 points, but he was at minus one. So he had cost the team 21 points, you know. Right. So if you look purely at the points, pretty good performance, you know. But yeah. if you look at the plus minus, the cost of benefit, you know, All minus right. one is not a good performance. Uh, Nick in that match was at 18 points, plus nine. So, he's asked, so if you put nine over 18, is 50%. This is right. a good performance for a receiver attack. so you know uh, this this i like and then uh, same thing i will go look at why why did he make so many errors you know like uh, and then make him make him aware because often the players will see look at their point but don't want to look at the other part you know they like they like to look at the benefit but not so much at the cost right right so that's that's an important metric for me
0: Right. Fantastic. All right. Um, listen, coach, I appreciate your time today. I know our listeners have gotten a ton of value out of today's episode. In fact, I would recommend you guys listening to the episode again and taking notes. Um, I don't know if you saw me, but I was on my computer taking notes here too. I, I'm always trying to learn and uh, help our team. So I hope coaches, you were doing the same. Uh, but I appreciate any any final thoughts, any final words, uh, Glenn, for, the, for our listeners?
1: No, I, I'm really happy uh, that you gave me this opportunity to, to talk to our coaches and stuff. And I hope that, you know, that it can help them better their coaching and enjoy, enjoy our, our game. Our game's a great game. And yeah. I wish them luck. Stay safe, everyone. And yeah. uh, hopefully we'll get back in the gym soon as, as groups.
0: Right. Well, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Volleyball by Design podcast. We'll see you next week. Take care.